0: The following audio is from the Ridge Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. For more information about Ridge Church, please visit ridgechurch.cc. We hope you enjoy this Ridge message Church, how from the Ridge. Awesome, awesome! I love that song. I love the the bridge of that song that says, "He is our portion and we are His prize." I love that. It reminds me of the of the promise that God made to to Israel when He said, "You will be My people and I will be your God." And it's in that, that covenant that he, he makes a promise to us saying that, that I am yours and you are mine. And I will prove that once and for all by giving a sacrifice to purchase you. And that's through his son, Jesus. Amen. It's good news for all of us. Hey, we are in a series called The Book of Acts. It's a really creative name about a series on The Book of Acts. And um, so we are going through this as we have been for the last uh, seven, eight, maybe nine weeks now, I forget, it's been a while, and so if you haven't had a chance to, to catch up on this series, we just encourage you to go to ridgechurch.cc or go to iTunes and download the podcast and, and catch up there, but even if you've not had a chance to catch up, if your today is your first day here at the Ridge, first of all, welcome, my name is Bobby, we're so glad that you're with us, and somebody's on Periscope because I hear it whistling, and uh, that's okay, you, we're, you can watch, we're on Periscope r- live right now, so everybody's Hi, to Periscope back there, everybody online. All uh, right, and so we are in uh, talking about the book of Acts, and talking about how the church was formed, how how God created this movement of people, and how it spread from this little bitty, tiny place in Jerusalem. It's a city of about 40,000 people or so to even to reach to the ends of the earth here in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and and beyond. And so if today is your first day here, we're so glad that you're here today with us. Uh, Thank you for being here today as we dive into this. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and open it up to Acts chapter 6, and we will uh, get there in just a moment. Let me give you a little context to catch us all up to speed here for just a second. Uh, The church has formed. Jesus has been crucified he is resurrected he has ascended into heaven he has given his apostles uh, in acts chapter 1 he has given them a mission to uh, listen to the voice of the holy spirit and do what it says uh, basically telling them in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the father son and the holy spirit teaching them to obey everything that i have commanded you and he, then he says and i will be with you until the very end when he says that i will be with you what he is saying he's saying i will send the holy spirit to be with you i will send you a helper as he mentions earlier in the Gospels, this helper being the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit that will be with them. And so what he is saying, basically, he is saying that you will have this power. That's what he says in Acts one eight. He says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so he's saying you will have everything that you need to do that I'm calling you to do, and that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in the book of Acts, as we see the church form, it's not just a church, it's not just this uh, German word for church, it is Kirch and but it's not that german word for Kirch. that means a place where people gather what it actually is is the greek word ecclesia which is a movement it's a gathering of people it's not defined by a place for example 157 lasalle road that is where you are sitting right now this is a place this is not the church this is a building put together by wood and things that hold things together all right And other good things. We like that. Air conditioning. That's good. We like those things. Those are all good things. But that is not the church. You are the church. If you're a believer, you are part of the global church, the big C church. And you are an ecclesia That's the Greek word for a gathering of people. And you are a movement. Just like the early believers were a movement. And this movement grew to be huge. And so at this point in the history of the early church in Acts chapter 6, we have seen amazing things happen. We're starting to see some, some persecution happen to the early believers, but we're also starting to see that every time the church and every time the believers are persecuted, the church grows. It multiplies. When it's persecuted from the outside in, it multiplies from the inside out. It's amazing how that happens. And so the church at this point in Acts chapter six, is about 10 or 12,000 people somewhere right around there, and so it's grown from 12. Right? The early apostles, the disciples, there were 12 of them. It's grown from 12 to over 10,000 believers gathering together. And this is just in the city of Jerusalem at this point. It has not gone out to Judea. It has not gone out to Samaria. We'll start to see that next week. It has not gone out to the ends of the earth yet. It is still in this little bitty place in Israel in the city of Jerusalem, which is about 40,000 people at this point. And so it's amazing what God is doing. And it begins from here, it begins to spread out to the rest of the world. And it's amazing. And theologians and and historians and, and people all over for a very, 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 very long time have been asking this question. Why did it spread so rapidly? Why did it spread so rapidly? Last week, we, we saw a really important uh, piece in this whole multiplication process. We saw where the, the uh, believers were arrested, and they were persecuted, and they were beaten, and there was a very wise man uh, of the Sadducees, the, the religious leader, lawmakers of the day. They were gathered together, and they were figuring out what to do with the early di- disciples, the, these early apostles who had grown and, and multiplied. And, and one of the very wise men stood b- before the council, and he told them he said this he said simply if this movement if this thing that is happening if it is not of God it will fail but then he said this he said but if it is of God it cannot be stopped and hear me when I say this it has not been stopped it has not been stopped and it will continue to grow and multiply and so the way the church kept going, the way that it kept multiplying, the, the reason why it grew so rapidly, one of the main reasons, which is what we're going to look at today, one of the main reasons why it grew so rapidly and grew so quickly is because they kept things very, very simple. They kept things very, very simple. And when I say simple, what I mean by simple is uncomplicated, They kept things uncomplicated. And so if you have a Bible, let's look at this. Acts chapter six, starting in verse one. I'm gonna read you seven verses and we will unpack it. I want to give you a couple of things to ponder and consider. Acts chapter one starting or Acts chapter six, sorry, starting in verse one. It says this. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, let me uh, explain this for just a moment. We'll read a little, and then we'll kind of unpack for just a second. So you have the Hellenist and you have the Hebrews. Now, the Hellenists, they, uh, they were Greek-speaking Jews who had come from outside of Jerusalem into Jerusalem. And so they had begun to come into the city, Because they heard about Jesus. They heard what was going on. They heard about these amazing things. They heard about people being healed. They heard about people walking in the name of Jesus. And they they heard about how this church was beginning to grow. And so these are outsiders, Greek-speaking Jews, coming into the city. And so then you have the the Hebrew Jews. And so you have the Hebrews and and the Hellenists all in the city together. And the Hellenists, they looked around and they thought to themselves, okay, here's something weird. All of the Hebrew widows are being taken care of. Care of, but our widows are being looked over and so they had a complaint. They started to complain about what was happening with their own people. And so the complaint, this complaint that they had becomes a big deal because up to this point, unity in the church had been really, really strong. You hadn't seen really any disunity. In fact, you just saw the church growing together more and more and more. But now we're starting to see some disunity happen in the church. And disunity in the church, hear me when I say this, disunity in the church... Is like kryptonite to the spread of the gospel and the mission of Jesus. It's like kryptonite to the spread of the gospel and the mission of Jesus. And when, you want to, when, when we want to make a church ineffective for the mission and the glory of God, here's how you do it. Be ununified. Be ununified. Because it will render a church ineffective for the gospel and make it implode from the inside out again i'll say it again when the church was persecuted from the outside in the church grew you want to have some fun this afternoon go and look at the persecution of the church and see how the church grew when it was persecuted but here's something crazy the church in jerusalem first baptist jerusalem right i don't know if they were Baptists or not they might have been i don't know if you're baptist that's good news for you right so i grew up baptist so it's good news. anyway hey first baptist jerusalem the first church the first church that we see only lasted 36 years it grew, it grew to thousands upon thousands upon thousands and it only lasted 36 years in fact before we get to the end of the book of acts the first church in jerusalem will no longer exist why because of disunity because of disunity so you want to make a church ineffective be ununified for the mission and the glory of god more mo- churches will die to grumbling and complaining than will die from persecution. Do you know that? More churches will die from grumbling and complaining from persecution more than they will from, I mean, from from grumbling and complaining more than persecution. Um, I heard a heard a pastor tell this story one time. I thought it was hilarious because that's very true too. He told a story about this guy who was deserted on an island. Plane crash, you know, boat crash, something like that it gets deserted on this little tiny island. And on this little tiny island, when they come to, to rescue him and they, they show up to the island, they find this guy and they see that he has built three huts on the island. And, and they look at these three huts, and they ask the guy, why are there three different huts on this island? And the guy says, well, it's pretty simple. This first hut here, this is, this is my home. This is where I stay. This is where I sleep. This is where I eat. This is home right here. And the second hut, this is my church. This is where I go to church, you know. I feel like I need to go to church somewhere, and so I built a, a church right here. And they think, well, well what's, the, what's the third hut? What's that one? Oh, the, the first church split, and so we, they had to build another church. Some of y'all get that because you've been there, right? You've been there. It's like the color of the, they didn't like the color of the sand. So we had to, we had to go and build another, build another hut over here for a a third church. Listen, that's some of your stories though, isn't it? Like you've been there. You've been there. You've been in a place where where all of a sudden somebody had a complaint about something. All of a sudden somebody began to to complain and and the complaining just got to a point to where instead of doing something about it, it just became like like a cancer within the body. Prayer requests that started out to be things where people were simply saying, hey, we need to pray for such and such became a place of gossip and saying, hey, we need to pray for Bill because did you hear what he did? And so the church become, or became ununified in that. Satan's greatest weapon against the church will be the illusion to make people believe that churches are full of grace-giving, perfect people. I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know if you've paid attention or not. But the church is not full of grace-giving, perfect people. Did you know that? If you find that church, I would love for you to tell me where it's at. Perfect churches do not exist. Perfect churches do not exist. In fact, we say this here all the time because I just want to be real and honest with you. At this church, we love you so much to tell you the truth that we are imperfect. We are an imperfect church. And at some point, unfortunately, I hate to even say this, but it's true. At some point, we might even hurt you because here's the deal. I'm a sinner. You are a sinner. We are a bunch of sinners gathered underneath one roof. And so what happens when that happens? Eventually, sin will happen. But here's the thing. When it does happen, we want to do everything that we can possibly do to seek out forgiveness and reconciliation and become unified again. But if we have that understanding of one another, if we know that going in, then we might not have the illusion that some place is perfect, that people are perfect, that a pastor is perfect, because it does not exist. But here's the good news. The church is not full of perfect people, but we serve a perfect God. We serve a perfect God. And so when we gather together to worship and experience this this perfect God, unfortunately, there will be times when bad experiences happen. And bad experiences have been happening since the very beginning of the church. And so how did these people respond? How did they they respond to this? Well, it's it's very important. Look at this. Verse 2 says this. And the twelve summoned the full number. This is the the twelve apostles... The the original twelve, well, uh, original eleven plus one. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit, and full of wisdom, whom will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse five. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. We'll talk about Stephen more in in a few moments and next week. A man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip uh, the Prochorius, and, and Iconer, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, it's really important here the, these apostles that what they weren't saying is they weren't saying that that serving was beneath them. Here Hear me when I say this, serving is not beneath any believer. It should not be beneath any believer, especially, especially pastors. And so the apostles, they're not saying that serving is beneath them. They knew a thing or two about serving because they had been with Jesus. They saw Jesus serve. Listen, do you think that Jesus washing the disciples' feet, do do you think that was below him? Obviously, it wasn't because he did it, and he knew that Thomas probably had some stanky feet. And he washed them anyway, did he not? Because serving shouldn't be beneath any. Believer, They knew that the greatest act of service that they could do at this point in the church would be to teach the word, raise up leaders to lead the church, and delegate the care of the people around them. Now, probably what was happening here as well is that these apostles were already taking care of the Hebrew widows, and so they appointed seven Hellenist men to help take care of the Hellenist widows. And so it wasn't as if that they were overlooking anybody. The, the word would increase because of this because they would focus on on preaching of the word and so they would choose seven sound men leaders and delegate the care of the Hellenist widows to do this job. And then verse 7 it says that the word increased that it grew that it multiplied and that it listen to what it says it says the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem meaning that the church grew. Now this last part is very important. And it says and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So why the priest? Why does it even mention the priest? It was the job of the priest to take care of the widows in the Old Testament. If you look in the Old Testament, you see that the the job of taking care of the widows was given to the priest. And so these Jewish priests happened to be the biggest opposition to Jesus. In fact, it would have been the these Jewish priests that had a large hand in actually putting Jesus to death. But their hearts would change because of the way that they saw the church love one another. Their hearts would change. Now, all, all of these, the priests, all of these believers, the apostles gave them a job. And this is what. And this is basically what they said to them. They said, you are all now priests. You are all now priests. In fact, we can look at this in 1 Peter 2.9. Peter, one of the original apostles, says this in 1 Peter 2 9, listen, it says this, but you, talking about you and I, if you are a believer, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Did you know that you're a priest? Did you know that that word priest means a caretaker? If you're a believer, you are called to be a a caretaker and so a holy nation a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you've been called out of darkness, if you've been saved, Jesus looks at you as a priest. If you are a person who needs a title, there you go. You've got one now. We'll get you a name tag made. (laughs) But listen, we're called to this. Amazing things can happen, church, in this community when people see how believers love one another. Do you believe that? I believe that as we serve the poor and show grace to others. And we'll come back to this in just a few moments. But in these seven verses, we see four practices of the early church that that you and I need to, to reinforce or maybe even recommit ourselves to. And so the first two, if you're a believer here today, you're a Christian, these first two, these are for you. It doesn't matter if Rich Church is your home or not. If you're a believer, these first two apply to every believer in the room. The next two, Apply to all of us. Apply to all of us. If you're not a believer, if you're a person who has sort of just been watching Jesus from a distance, you're, you're not a Christian yet, or maybe you're just checking out this whole thing, these last two are going to be for you as well, as well as all believers. And so let's just unpack these real quick. The first one is this. Four practices that the early church uh, that we need to, to reinforce and recommit ourselves to. The first thing is that they practice keeping the main thing, the main thing. They practice keeping the main thing, the main thing. It's so easy for us to to forget the main thing, isn't it? Don't don't we complicate things sometimes and, and forget what the main thing is? And if you don't know what the main thing is, if you show up to a church and you're not sure what the main thing is at that church, then it's complicated. The main thing has to remain the main thing, and the main thing is Jesus. It has to be Jesus. In Revelation 2 and 3 you see the words of Jesus to, to seven churches in Ephesus which is modern day Turkey and in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and in Revelation chapter 3 you see the words of Jesus spoken to these to these churches and each one of them he reminds them to focus on what is most important and some of them he tells them that they need to to repent and return to their first love and focus themselves back on him and others that there were some great things happening but most of them Most of them, there was disunity happening. And so Jesus had to speak very sternly to them and tell them, Remember from which where you have fallen. Strengthen what remains. He He tells them, Don't be lukewarm. And so each one of these churches, he's saying, Hey, remember what the main thing is. It's me. It has to be Jesus. The main thing has to remain the main thing. Jesus was really good at this himself. In fact, he took uh, the commandments. He took 613 commandments of, of the Mosaic law. He took all 613 of them. And when, they were, uh, when men came to Jesus and said, Hey, Jesus, there are 613 commandments. Which one of these is the greatest? And Jesus took something very complicated and he made it very, very simple, didn't, didn't he? He said, he says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart right? And then he said, and the second is like, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. And so Jesus took something very complicated and, and boiled it down and made it very simple because he wanted the main thing to remain the main thing. Many churches have been cluttered with things that are not main things, but every church, every church, even this one, face, faces the danger That when we fail to keep the main thing, the main thing, we fail to exalt Jesus. And we cannot become so busy doing church that we are not able to be the church. Does that make sense? We cannot become so busy doing church that we are not able to to be the church, reflecting the gospel so that those who are far from God will be awakened to life in Christ. And if we lose sight of Jesus, we'll never accomplish the mission to see people far from God, awakened to life in Christ. And I believe that when people see Jesus, I believe that when people see Jesus, they'll change. And do you know where they see Jesus first? In us, in you. That's where they see Jesus first. And I I know it to be true because I've read it over and over and over again. When people see Jesus, they don't stay the same. And so when they see Jesus in us, See, us keeping Jesus the main thing, people can change. People can change. Number two, they practiced serving others. They practice serving others. In chapter 6, we're introduced to a man named Stephen. And Stephen, later in the next chapter, we don't get a chance to really get to know Stephen very well, but in chapter 7, Stephen becomes the first Christian martyr. But he before he becomes the first Christian martyr, we get to learn a little bit about Stephen. He's introduced to us as a servant. But what we learn about Stephen, as we'll see next week in chapter 7, is that Stephen is a very capable, intelligent, strong leader who also happens to be a really good preacher. Happens to be a really good preacher because when Stephen preaches his one and only sermon that we know of, a man by the name of Saul who had been persecuting Christians sees the love of Jesus in Stephen and hears his words and as Stephen is being put to death, something changes in this man named Saul. And it won't be long after this that he meets Jesus for the first time and his entire life changes. And so what we learn about Stephen is that Stephen is a very capable leader, but we also know that Stephen never said that serving widows was below him, even though he could have been qualified to be a, a pastor or a church planner or a, a seminary professor or, or, or whatever, right? You, you put the title on Stephen could have been this man and he could have done it very, very well. It should never be below us to serve, because it was not below Jesus to serve. In fact, what did Jesus say himself? He said that he came to what? came to serve. He came to serve. And so, listen, if Jesus came to serve, if you're a believer here, and you're going, yeah, but that's just not me. What are you reading? We're not reading the same Bible, are we? Jesus said, I have come to serve, not to what? Be served. And so we learn from the example of Jesus. That's why we here at the Ridge Church. We say that we exist to be a reflection of the gospel. We exist to reflect the life of Jesus. Francis Schaefer, Schaefer, I love what he said. He said this. He said that love on display is the church's most effective apologetic. Love on display is the church's most effective apologetic. And that word apologetic, it just simply means a defense of the faith and he says that love on display is our greatest defense of the faith and so we can lose sight of the fact of that fact believers are servants and so i ask you this question are you serving those around you are you a Christian? Are you serving those around you? Do you, do you call Ridge Church home? Are you, are you serving in some compa- capacity here at, at a place that you call Ridge Church home? If this is your first day here at the Ridge, not really talking to you at this moment. We'll talk to you in just a minute. But if you are a, a, a regular attender here at the Ridge, are you serving somewhere? Are you serving somewhere? Make no mistake, serving in this church makes you a Reflecting the gospel because Jesus served, and B, helping to awaken people far from God to life in Christ. And it doesn't matter what you do, every way you can serve here helps awaken people to new life in Christ. From mowing the grass, to serving coffee, to teaching Jesus, to, to kids and students and, and rich kids. I, I love, if you serve here at the Ridge, I just want to say this to you. I love, you're, you're one of my favorite people. If you don't serve here, I love you still. But I love some people a little more. Hey, I'm, I'm a sinner, okay? I'm just, I'm just saying. I, I love you. But, but here's why. Here's why. I'll, I'll give you one example of this. Last night, my family and I, we uh, went out to dinner, and as we uh, come back, came back from dinner, we ran by the church. It was about 9, 9.30 last night, and we came by here to drop some stuff off. And when I stopped here and got out of my car, Steve White, some of you know Steve White. Steve White was down back here, finishing up mowing the lawn at 9.30 last night. Steve White has two jobs. Steve White has a large family. Steve White has no time, but you know what he's doing? Mowing the yard because he's serving. Because he knows, he knows that every Sunday, people who are far from God are stepping their feet onto this campus, and he knows that the gospel is preached before they ever get out of their car. And I love that. I love that. Early this morning, there were people here early this morning preparing and setting things up and making sure the building was nice and clean and that the coffee was hot and that the tea was cold and that the music was ready and that lights and production and all that stuff was set up, that that things down in Rich Kids were ready to go. All of these things, and these things happen well before you or I ever get here because the gospel starts in the parking lot. And so it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you serve by, uh, in the production team or serving coffee or, or doing things that happen here throughout the week or uh, whether it be with recovery groups or teaching kids on Sunday morning and Ridge kids or on Wednesday night with Ridge students. All of those things help awaken people to life in Christ. And it's part of being a reflection of the gospel. It's part of being a reflection of the gospel. Now, let me say this. We do a, I, 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 I believe this with all of my heart, you all do an amazing job at, at doing that. You all do an amazing job at serving. It takes, listen, it takes about 40 people per service to staff all of the volunteer positions here at the Ridge on a Sunday, on any given Sunday. And in a couple of weeks, in, a, in about a month from now, we'll, we'll give you more information about this as we get closer, but not long from now, we'll be adding back our third service at the end of August. And so, if you can imagine, it's going to take about 120 people every Sunday. It's a lot of people. And so I ask you this, are you serving somewhere? Are you serving somewhere? And, and maybe you think, well, I don't know where to serve. I don't, I don't know how to serve. I don't know where I need to get involved. And I, I will say this, and we'll move on to the next one, is that it starts simply with either your place of gifting, passion, or need place of gifting, passion or need. What are you gifted to do? Start there. What are you passionate about? Start there. If you don't like kids, don't serve in kids, okay? Like let's 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 keep if you like goldfish though, we got the hookup for you. You know what I'm saying? And so like like what are you passionate about? Where are you gifted to serve? Are you a talented musician? Can you sing? Do you love kids? If you love kids, let me just say this. we need Probably the, the biggest place of need for us right now is with kids because we need to open up some new rooms down there. When we add a third service, we need to staff volunteers for an entire third service. And so we need you right now, today, if you're not serving anywhere, to grab a Connect card and say, I want to serve. Put your name and an email address on it so we can call you. That would be a good place to start too, okay? But, like, get involved. Let, Get involved because here's the thing. You will have a part in helping reflect the gospel so that those who are far from God will be awakened to life in Christ. And I I said it last week and go back and listen to the podcast last week. Part of your story may be one day that as you do that, that somebody is back here in these waters getting baptized and when they start to get dunked underneath the water, before they get dunked, they say, you know what, such and such, they reflected the gospel to me because I was far from God. And that's why I'm in, in, the, in these waters right now. Number three. Number three. They practiced the preaching of the gospel. Verse 7, it says that, that many of the priests became believers. And so all of the people that you would think that would get the gospel from the beginning would be the priests. Yet they were the, the staunchest foes of the gospel. And so understand this, that no one, no one in this room or outside of this room is exempt from the gospel. There is no one of us that is exempt from the gospel. The gospel that that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's going to do all that he promised us that he would do, that he gave his life as a sacrifice to pay the debt of our sins so that we would have life and to have it more abundantly. That is the good news. Gospel means good news, and that good news is for every single one of us. Even if you're already a believer, that is still for you. Right outside of these doors, down the hallway there, there are seven core values that we have on a, on, on a, a blackboard that is out in the hallway to your right. And Those are our seven core values that, that drive our church here. And one of those core values says that no one is exempt. And what that means is that means that saint or sinner alike, blue-collar, white-collar, stay-at-home mom, working mom, pastors, elders, sinners, regardless, none of us are exempt from the gospel listen, you never get past the gospel. You never get past the gospel. And these priests were awakened to life in the gospels. Titles don't determine your distance from God. Regardless if you serve here, been here for years, or if you are here for the first time, you and I are not exempt from the gospel. It's for all of us. And this is Again, one of the things that drives our church, serving as a reminder that we can be far from God at any time. I can be far from God. You can be far from God. We can all be far from God. In fact, we have all at some point in our lives been far from God. Ephesians tells us that we were once alienated from God, that we were once far off from Him, but we have been brought near to Him through the blood of Jesus. Far from God is not a measurable distance. It's a position of the heart. You may be far from God today. The gospel is for you. The gospel is for you. And then finally, number four, they practice grace for everyone. They practice grace for everyone. Because no one is exempt from the gospel, we are reminded that God's grace is for everyone. We saw Jesus do this, didn't we? If you know anything about the story of Jesus, you saw Jesus himself do this over and over and over again. The woman caught in adultery. There was grace for the woman caught in adultery. The Samaritan woman, there was grace for the Samaritan woman. For the thief on the cross, before he took his last breath, there was grace for him, wasn't there? The grace of God is for everyone, and the early believers, they practiced this themselves because they poured out grace. For the priest who had such a large hand in leading Jesus to the cross. The priest played a vital role in having Jesus put to death, and they opposed Jesus as Messiah, encouraged others to oppose him as Savior, yet God chose to save them. And if the grace of God is for them, it's for you too. It's for me. If God can save them, he can certainly save you. If God can forgive them, he can certainly forgive us. I have a friend in Nashville, and at his church, he—I love what he says. Their church has a motto, kind of like we say this: "Not okay to, or it's okay to not be okay." (laughs) Sorry, I got that wrong. (laughs) It's not okay to be no. It's okay to not be okay. That's what we say here at the Ridge all the time. But they have a motto at their church too, and it says that everybody is welcome because nobody is perfect. Meaning that God's grace is for everyone. Next week, we'll we'll dive into this, this grace a bit deeper as we look at the death of Stephen, and we're going to look at the motivations of grace, how we receive grace, and how we give grace. So I encourage you to come back for that. But God's grace is for everyone. So as we close this morning, we're going we're gonna to take communion here in just a moment, as we do each week here at the Ridge. But before we take communion, a couple of things. Let me Let me just say this. Number one, if today is your first day here at the Ridge, We welcome you to take communion with us. If you're a believer, we encourage you to come take communion with us. This is not a Ridge Church thing. This is a believer's thing. So we remember the sacrifice of Jesus through the the broken bread being a symbolism of his body that was broken for us through through the juice, which symbolizes his blood that's been poured out for us, the sacrifice that he gives us so that we may have life. And so we encourage you to come and take communion with us if you're a believer. But before we all take communion, before we all come to the table here in just a moment, just a couple of challenges for you. First of all, if you're not a believer here this morning, we, we encourage you to, to sit and ponder before coming take communion that, that before you take communion that you become a believer before you take communion. That if you're not a believer here this morning, the gospel is for you. Grace is for you. It doesn't matter how far from God you feel. God says, I've given my son that you would be brought near to me. That you would simply, right where you are, just be able to say, Father, save me. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no class that you have to go to. It's a prayer. It's a repentance says, I'm going to turn from my sin, I'm going to turn from myself, I'm going to turn from how I've lied to myself about what I've really wanted in life, and I'm going to turn to the cross to receive life. And if you are a believer here this morning, the gospel is for you, the grace is for you as well, and that you take a few moments this morning before coming to the table and just repent of sin. But with that said, as we do that, a couple of practical challenges as well. Have you allowed complaining, maybe by yourself or by others, have you allowed that to disrupt unity with believers and forget that we have to be about Jesus together? Has Jesus stopped being the main thing for you? Has it become something else? Has church become something else? If it has, I encourage you this morning to take time to, to just allow Jesus to become the main thing again, to repent of those things, to to ask God to separate you from those things so that He is the only thing. Refocus your attention. Secondly, has has serving those around you become more like a burden? Do you feel like serving is, is more of a burden than it is a joy? Here's, here's what I know about this to be true, because I've, I've been in those places before where I felt like even preaching sometimes, I'm just being honest, preaching sometimes feels more like a burden than it does a joy. But here's what I know to be true, is that every time that I refocus my attention on Jesus, he fills my heart with joy, regardless of what is going on in my life. So serving become a burden for you. Ask Jesus to fill your heart with that joy again. The joy that you have when you first became a believer. That joy that you had when getting up early in the morning was something that you couldn't wait to do so that you could see those who were far from God awaken a new life in Christ. Third, do you need the gospel today? Sort of an open-ended question. We all need the gospel today. Allow it to to wash over you. Jesus loves you and he gave his life for you. Let's allow that to, to soak up into our hearts. You can never outrun or distance yourself from God's grace either. So if you feel far from God today, God's grace is for you. It's for us all. So as we pray, I just encourage you to take a few moments and and take that next step. Whatever that next step may be for you, I don't know what it is for you. You know what it is. God has already spoken it to you. We can either be obedient to his voice or disobedient. That's up to us. It's up to you. And so before we come to the table to take communion, let's take a few moments to pray. You take a few moments to just focus your attention on Jesus. And as the band plays this last song, as they begin to, to sing, at your discretion, at, at your uh, opportunity, you come and take communion. We have communion tables over here. There will also be people available to, to pray with you if you want someone to pray with you. They'll be up front here. But as we do that this morning, I want to say this. If you don't feel like taking communion today, you don't have to. It's okay. Just take time to, to focus your attention on Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for your word this morning, God, how it challenges us, God, how it fills us with new life, how it brings the gospel front and center to our hearts. God, how, how you speak loudly to us, God, regardless of how far off we may be. God, we are in this room together, God, to, to hear your voice. And so, God, speak to us. Give us the courage to take our very next step. God, fill us with new faith. God, fill us with the courage to to repent. God, and wash over us with your grace and mercy. Jesus, we love you, and we thank you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me?